Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 240. It's titled, Three Financial Lessons from Henry David Thoreau. Been thinking a lot about Thoreau recently as LaPro and I arrived in Phoenix a few weeks ago. Just brought our, our cars, our clothes, our dog, podcasting equipment, video equipment, and nothing else. So we showed up at our house. The realtor met us with the keys, and there was a box with a mattress on the front porch. That first night, that's all we had. One mattress to sleep on. Then over the, the last few weeks, we've been slowly adding things to the house, figuring out what we need. What can we buy used? What should we buy new? Kind of getting it down to the essentials and somewhat like Thoreau did. Probably a little grander scale. But I've been thinking about Thoreau. In some ways, he's very relatable. He was not wealthy. He struggled with money issues much of his life. Now, his family had a successful pencil-making business. But Thoreau wanted to make his own way in the world. For much of his life, he was poor. He wrote in the first chapter of Walden, Some of you, we all know, are poor, find it hard to live, are sometimes, as it were, gasping for breath. I have no doubt that some of you who read this book are unable to pay for all the dinners which you have actually eaten, or for the coats and shoes which are fast wearing or are already worn out, and have come to this page to spend borrowed or stolen time, robbing your creditors of an hour. It is very evident what mean and sneaking lives many of you live. For my sight has been wedded by experience, always on the limits, trying to get into business, trying to get out of debt. That's what Thoreau experienced. He was in debt for much of his life. He had a number of businesses fail. He got laid off, fired from jobs. Even this cabin or hut he built, he didn't own the land next to Walden Pond. Ralph Waldo Emerson did. He bought it the year before, in September 1844. Emerson wrote his brother, I have lately added an absurdity or two to my usual ones, which I am impatient to tell you of. In one of my solitary wood walks by Walden Pond, I met two or three men who told me they had come thither to sell and to buy a field, on which they wished me to bid as a purchaser. As it was on the shore of the pond, and now for years I had a sort of daily occupancy in it, I bid on it and bought it, 11 acres for $8.10 per acre. The next day, Emerson bought three or four more acres. These were wooded acres adjacent to the original purchase. He paid $125, so roughly $30 to $40 per acre. The difference was it was wooded. The 11 acres he bought, originally that the wood had been cut down about 15 years earlier, so there were a lot of stumps. But the wooded acreage, much higher demand. Emerson wrote his brother, So I am a landlord and waterlord of 14 acres, more or less, on the shore of Walden 
and can raise my own blackberries. Emerson bought the land because he he walked on it. And one of the things that was happening is the railroad had come through. There was a lot of consumption of timber. A sawmill was running just near there, cutting up chestnut trees to make rails. I guess they're called sleepers for the train tracks. So the price of wood was was rising rapidly. Emerson wanted to secure a supply of firewood, and he wanted to preserve the woods that he liked to walk in. This parcel was not in primeval forest by any means. It was kind of, and this is the description found in a book called Walden Pond by W. Barksdale Maynard. It was on the north edge uh, of the woods between the highway and the train tracks. You could see the train tracks and the highway, the road, from the door. Thoreau borrowed an axe to cut down some of Emerson's newly bought trees to fashion into beams. He used recycled boards for his hut that he got from an abandoned Irish shanty next to the railroad. Irish had had built huts that they lived in while they helped build the railroad. His chimney came from recycled bricks from a building that was built in the late 1790s. And then he began his two-year experiment. He left Walden Wood September 6th, 1847. We don't really know why he left, but Maynard suggests that Throw needed money. He, he tried growing beans at seven miles of bean rows, about 25,000 plants. He wrote in August at one point, I'm not going to grow beans next year. doesn't sound like he liked that. But Emerson actually bought the cabin back from Thoreau, and then Thoreau moved into Emerson's house to house sit and to help care for a young pear and apple orchard that Emerson had just started. Emerson was going abroad. The first financial lesson we can learn from Thoreau, he taught in that first chapter of Walden. It's to calculate cost in terms of our life. Here's how Frederick Grow, he's a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. He describes this as Thoreau's new economics. He wrote about it in a great book of philosophy of walking. He writes, Thoreau proposed a new economics. The principle is a simple one. Instead of asking what return a given activity will produce, the question is what it cost in terms of pure life. In Walden, Thoreau wrote, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it. Immediately or in the long run? How much of our life are we spending pursuing an activity that maybe gives us financial return? But what's the cost? Cal Newport, in his book, Digital Minimalism, this just came out, wrote, Thoreau's obsession with calculation helps us move past the vague, subjective sense that there are trade-offs inherent in digital clutter and forces us instead to confront it more precisely. He asks us to treat the minutes of our life 
as a concrete and valuable substance, arguably the most valuable substance we possess, and to always reckon with how much of this life we trade for the various activities we are allowed to claim our time. When we confront our habits through this perspective, we will reach the same conclusion now that Thoreau did in his era. More often than not, the cumulative cost of the non-crucial things we clutter our lives with can far outweigh the small benefits each individual piece of clutter promises. A few months ago, I concluded an experiment that I started in June 2017. I started tracking my time on an iPhone app. I wanted to see where my life was going, what, was, what activities were, was I spending my life on, what was the cost. I found I typically spent 55 hours a week sleeping, including naps, 31 hours working, of which are on average nine hours is writing or prepping for the podcast. And on average, I spend one and a half to two hours a week recording the podcast. Then in October 2018, I just stopped. I got tired of picking up my phone that much. I was spending too much of my life quantifying how I was spending my time. Frederick Groh points out, and this is one of the principles that Thoreau taught, that we need to distinguish profit, financial profit, from benefits. He writes, the difference between profit and benefit is that operations producing profit can be carried out on my behalf. But the fact remains that profitable activity can always be carried out by someone else. Hence the principle of competition. On the other hand, what is beneficial to me depends on gestures, acts, living moments, which it would be impossible for me to delegate. Thoreau wrote in a letter that when considering a course of action, one should ask, could someone else do it in my place? If the answer is yes, abandon the idea, unless it is absolutely essential. Living in the deepest sense is something no one else can do for us. So delegate things that cost us too much in terms of our life. Thoreau says we should be constantly calculating this. A lot of calculations in Walden as he went into excruciating detail in terms of what it cost to put his house together. So that's the first lesson. Calculate the true cost in terms of our life. Second is, and this is a quote from Thoreau, we cannot afford not to live in the present. In May 1962, a month after Thoreau passed away, The Atlantic magazine published an essay by Thoreau titled Walking. In there, Thoreau wrote, Above all, we cannot afford not to live in the present. He is blessed over all mortals who loses no moment of the passing life in remembering the past. Then Thoreau expands on an analogy using roosters. I remember when I lived in Mexico, there were roosters that called in the mornings, but in the afternoons, all the time. Eventually, you learn to tune them out. Thoreau says we shouldn't do that. He writes, unless our philosophy hears the cock crow in every barnyard within our horizon, it is belated. In other words, 
not a good philosophy. We need to listen. That sound commonly reminds us that we are growing rusty and antique in our employments and habits of thought. His, the rooster's philosophy, comes down to a more recent time than ours. There is something suggested by it that is a newer testament, the gospel according to this moment. He continues, the rooster has not fallen astern. He has got up early and kept up early to be where he is, to be in season, in the foremost rank of time. In other words, the rooster's in the present. He says the rooster's call is an expression of health and soundness of nature, a brag for all the world. We should be in the present, is what Thoreau suggests. Thich Nhat Han is a world-renowned Zen monk, a poet and peace activist that was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, born in Vietnam, spent decades exiled in France. In his book, You Are Here, he writes, a fundamental condition for love is your own presence. In order to love, you must be here. That is certain. Fortunately, being here is not a difficult thing to accomplish. It is enough to breathe and let go of thinking or planning. Just come back to yourself. Concentrate on your breath and smile. And the technique he gives is as you breathe in, say to yourself, breathing in, I know that I am breathing in. He writes, when you do this, the energy of mindfulness embraces your in-breath just like the sunlight touching the leaves and branches of a tree. Being in the present. We have a tendency to worry. Worry about our financial situation. Are we saving enough? What's the market doing? What, what, what about our investments? We need to step back and focus, being mindful and focus on the present. Frederick Rowe says, A day will surely come when we will just stop worrying. Stop being taken over and imprisoned by our chores, while knowing very well that we have invented most of them, imposed them on ourselves, working, accumulating savings, perpetual anxiety, not to miss any career opportunity, coveting this or that job, rushing the work, worrying about competitors. Do this, take a look at that, invite so-and-so, social constraints, cultural fashions, busy, 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 but always to do something not to be. We'll leave that for later. There's always something better, more urgent, more important to be done now. Being can wait until tomorrow. But tomorrow brings chores for the day after, an endless tunnel, and they call it living. I recently finished the book Essentialism by Greg McHugh, and I listened to it again. I'd read it before. And my takeaway from that is to is I, I always ask myself, what is the most essential thing I can be doing now to bring myself into the present? So I'm not spending so much time worrying. What's the most essential thing I can do now? To take a moment to breathe and to listen. Before we explore Thoreau's third financial lesson, let me pause and share some words from one of this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, 
inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. The third financial lesson from Thoreau is a little counterintuitive. Once we have eliminated activities that are costing too much of our life, and we've learned to delegate, to focus on the present, what do we do with this extra time? Thoreau's answer, and it's the third financial lesson, is to walk. In his essay, Walking, Thoreau wrote, No wealth can buy the requisite leisure, freedom, and independence, which are the capital in this profession, the profession of walking. Capital is typically considered monetary wealth, monetary assets. Thoreau says monetary wealth can't buy the capital, the leisure, freedom, and independence necessary to be a walker. He says only by the grace of God, it requires a direct dispensation from heaven to become a walker. You must be born into the family of walkers. What does he mean? Thoreau wrote, I think I cannot preserve my health and spirits unless I spend four hours a day at least. And it is commonly more than that. Sauntering through the wood and over the hills and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagements. He continues, I confess that I am astonished at the power of endurance to say nothing of the moral insensibility of my neighbors who confine themselves to shops and offices, the whole day, for weeks and months, I and years, almost together. I know now what manner of stuff they are of, sitting there now at three o'clock in the afternoon, as if it were three o'clock in the morning. Frederick Groh provides a little more insight into what Thoreau is getting at. He writes, in The Philosophy of Walking, Walking, as they say, empties the mind. In another way, walking fills the mind with a different sense of purpose. Not connected with ideas or doctrine, not in the sense of a head full of phrases, quotations, theories, but full of the world's presence. That presence which, during the walk in successive strata, has been deposited in the soul throughout the day. And when the evening comes, one hardly needs to think. Just breathe. Close your eyes and feel on your body the layers of landscape dissolving and recomposing, the color of the sky, the flash of leaves, the outline of the jumbled hills. I have been taking a lot of hikes while we've been living in Arizona. We were at Zaguaro National Park last Saturday, walked up a wash. And back for a little over an hour, I took close to a two-hour hike yesterday in the Phoenix Mountain Park. 
And it's true, once you walk, and when I've walked for days in Yellowstone, you lay down, just have images of things that were deposited throughout the day. The walk yesterday, the poppies blooming on the hills, and the cacti. Grow continues, what he saw, Thoreau wrote. He made his own. He meant, Thoreau meant, that one stores when walking vivid feelings and sunny memories. Our treasure, our real property, is the quantity of representations that we have taken in and conserved. Seems odd. I mean, that, that we have all this time and all we're going to do is walk? No. Thoreau says, moreover, you must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates when walking. When a traveler asked Wordsworth's servant to show him her master's study, she answered, here is his library, but his study is out of doors. We need uninterrupted blocks of time to think, to get ideas. I'm surprised as I've hiked how many people have earbuds in, probably listen to podcast or Spotify. How much time is interrupted by social media? I was at a restaurant the other day. We were, we were eating. And there was a, a short break. I don't, I don't know if I was waiting for food or whatever. And I had that twitch that there's a, there's a moment of uninterrupted time. I need to grab my phone and, and fill it with some news. That's space. We get into these bad habits like that. I have them. So structuring these uninterrupted blocks of time that just be with our thoughts. Jean M. Twenge, who's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, wrote an article in The Atlantic titled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? She's been studying millennials and, and other generations. And she writes, parenting styles continue to change as do school curricula and culture, and these things matter. But the twin rise of the smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of a magnitude we have not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. The level of anxiety and depression among the young, young generation, just, it's unheard of. She quotes the Monitoring the Future survey. This is funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It's designed, she points out, to be nationally representative. So they've asked 12th graders more than 1,000 questions every year since 1975. And they've asked 8th and 10th graders since 1991. She writes, the survey asked teens how happy they are and also how much of their leisure time they spend on various activities, including non-screen activities, such as in-person social interaction and exercise. And in recent years, screen activities such as using social media, texting and browsing the web. The results could not be clearer. Teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And those who spend more time than average on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. We as adults need to monitor our screen time. My oldest son texted me the other day, and he wrote, thanks for letting me get bored when I was younger. 
And then he attached an opinion piece by Pamela Paul in the New York Times titled, Let Children Get Bored Again. Paul writes, Once you truly settled into anesthetizing effects of boredom, you find yourself en route to discovery. You let your mind wander and follow it where it goes. Of course, it's not really the boredom itself that's important. It's what we do with it. When you reach your breaking point, boredom teaches you to respond constructively, to make something happen for yourself. But unless we are faced with a steady diet of stultifying boredom, we never learn how. The idea isn't that you suffer through crushing tedium indefinitely. It's that you learn how to vanquish it. This may come in several forms. You might turn inward and use the time to think. You might reach for a book. You might imagine your way to a better job. Boredom leads to flight of fantasy, but ultimately to self-discipline, to resourcefulness. Which brings us back to walking. Walking gives us that time, that unstructured time to let our mind wander and to get ideas and then follow up on them. Ideas that could be financially rewarding at some point. But we don't do it for profit. We do it for the benefit to live, to be. One way that I've been able to block out this uninterrupted time is to batch when I do things. I, I'll batch reading email. I, don't, I won't read it throughout the day. I'll just look at it a couple times during the day. In the evening, I'll ba- I subscribe to five or six newspapers, but I'll batch reading the news at screen time. I'll spend 30 to 45 minutes in the evening, catching up on things I need to for what I do for my job. Gross says, that is why walking leads to a total loss of interest in what is called, laughably no doubt, the news, one of whose main feature is that it becomes old as soon as it is uttered. Once caught in the rhythm, Thoreau says, you are on the treadmill. You want to know what comes next. That's what social media is. That's what news is. I mean, our, our brains like that randomness of something happening. What's happening now? Sends the endorphins jumping. We like that novelty. And so it takes work to structure that uninterrupted block of time, to not have that iPhone twitch. That's why wealth, as Thoreau says, isn't what will buy us that freedom. That independence, it takes self-discipline to learn to be bored. Thoreau wonders, why is it, say between four and five o'clock in the afternoon, he writes, too late for the morning papers and too early for the evening ones, there is not a general explosion heard up and down the street, scattering a legion of antiquated and house-bred notions and whims to the four winds for an airing. In other words, back in his day when there was no news from the morning to the evening, why aren't people out walking? As opposed to sitting at their desk. But the idea is not to be a hermit. Thoreau was not a hermit. He lived at the edge of the village. But he was a 30-minute walk back to, to where his friends and family were. Henry Seidel Canby wrote in 1939 that Thoreau was never a hermit except when snow shut him in 
or heavy rain, or his own absorption in work. To go and see Henry Thoreau was a Concord recreation. Historian Robert Sattemeyer wrote, Thoreau's isolation was a virtual and an imaginative rather than actual one. Walden Pond was not, in short, either a retired or a pristine place. In fact, one could hardly have chosen a more visible and public spot to retire to. Raymond Adams said the hermit of Walden was a very public hermit. Maynard writes, Walden, the book, Thoreau makes no attempt to deny his proximity to town, to which he strolled every day or two. He lives on the very edge of it in order to see its foibles more clearly, fleeing to the woods to better understand civilization in the manner of the ancient philosophers. And frankly, to get away from his noisy family home so he could write and think to structure that uninterrupted blocks of time. Those are the three financial lessons from Thoreau to calculate the cost of what we do and what we buy in terms of the life it's going to take. How much time is it going to take to earn that money? Or how much time is being wasted pursuing that activity compared to the benefit? Two is we cannot afford not to live in the present. Stop worrying about the future and focus more on the present. Use some of those techniques, breathing techniques of Buddhism. And three, to walk to scheduled, uninterrupted blocks of time each day to just think. Maybe we're out walking, maybe we're, we're, we're biking, but we're not being interrupted by others. We're just being and using that time to create and to think and to better ourselves. That's episode 240. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. All the links that I've shared you can find there. Why there? Please sign up for my free insider's guide. I'll just to make it easy for you. I'll email those links each week along with uh, an essay, things that didn't make it into the podcast that week. Some of the best writing I do each week. That's at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I haven't considered your specific risk situation haven't provided investment advice simply general educational money investing in the economy have a great week